there anybody here who likes change? I like change. I, I just wanted to say it. Like some people actually like change and are excited about it. Every Sunday, I or every Saturday night, I go to bed and I'm like, "All right, Lord, what do you got for us tomorrow morning?" And I usually come in and sit close to the front, and then it's fun to like walk up and then look out and be like, "Oh wow, okay, cool. There are a lot of you here, and that's exciting." Um, I'm excited about what God is doing here. As most of you know, I uh, tend to share that frequently, but I love what God is doing through the family and through people serving and getting involved and being excited. It's fun to see new faces every week, and it's fun to see other people like actually coming back every week, which is really nice. Sometimes you open the Word and, and preach, and you think, well, I hope people come back and listen again next week, and you keep coming back, so we appreciate it. If you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter, and we've got a song at the end that's a really good one, so I've got to get to work here. Over the last seven weeks, we've been talking about a lot of really good news. Like, the Foundation series is really about looking at foundational truths from Genesis 1 and 2 uh, that really stand in opposition to some of the truths that our culture is teaching us about various things. But we've looked at these foundational truths for life issues from God's perspective in Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't know about you, but this is like all good news. The last seven weeks, all good news, right? Hey, good news, like God's on the throne. Amen? Like good news, God exists and God created everything. And there's one God and good news, you're not him. And good news, I'm not him, right? Good news, I have identity and purpose and value. And good news, that's not found in how I live or what I do or how I look or how much I make or what my house looks like. But my identity is found in Christ and Christ alone and being made in the image of God. That's kind of good news. Hey, good news. In this world where like anything flies, God actually has a, a, a blueprint for human uh, relationships and for gender and understanding like how God created gender. That's good news. Good news. God created marriage, and when we do marriage God's way, it works properly. That's pretty good news, isn't it? There's been lots of good news over the last seven weeks if we look at God's word and, and do the things that God called us to do in God's way. It's, that's all good news. God's given us what we've said is a blueprint or a roadmap to get exactly what it is that we're all looking for. Like everybody wants human flourishing. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to have the good life. And in the, just the first two chapters of the Bible, God's given us the blueprint for that. This is like a big book. How many of you have tried to read through it? Right? It's a big book, and it gets kind of sketchy after this first couple chapters. Right? And you get to the second and third book, and you're like, I don't even know what's happening here. Like they're killing animals, and people are doing really weird things. Right? You've only got to read the first two chapters to get God's blueprint for how life is supposed to work. But then you look around in the world, right? And I read the Bible, and I read the first two chapters, and I'm like, all right, this is amazing. Let's, let's all do that. Everybody will be happy, and everything will be great, and, like, guys will marry women, and it'll be really cool, right? And then we go out, and we look at the world around us. Does this seem maybe a little bit broken? Does it seem like maybe there are things in life that aren't the way that they're supposed to be? There's a, a really popular book that's on the doctrine of sin, and it's just titled, Not the Way That It's Supposed to Be. You look around the world and you say, this is, doesn't seem to be the way that God intended. It didn't, doesn't seem to be, even if you don't believe in God. Maybe you're here today and you're like, oh, I'm not sure about this whole God thing. Like, you've got to look at the world and think, is this really like what it's supposed to be? 
this past week I was uh, in the hospital. Now, I wasn't, I was visiting in the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital, but I was up in Seattle uh, at one of the hospitals up in Seattle vi- as a visitor, and I'm sitting in the waiting room for several hours, and people are coming and going, and different things are happening. And you know what? I, I'm actually studying for the sermon, and I've got my books and my notes, and I'm doing my studying, and you realize, like, there's a lot of brokenness when you're sitting in a hospital waiting room. You see people coming and going, and their lives are being changed in that moment, right? You realize, like, there's a lot of people who are hurting, who are getting really good news, or getting really bad news, or going through very difficult things. And it, I didn't even have to go to the hospital to realize that things are broken, because on the drive there, I realized things are broken. Because I was driving to Seattle, right? If you're on the freeway, on the way to Seattle, 167, it'll take you five minutes, you realize, like, things are broken, Right? The way that we do like traffic engineering, very broken. The way that people drive, lots of brokenness. Today we're going to talk about the reason for that brokenness. Today we're going to talk about one of the most unpopular doctrines in all the Bible. That's uh, the doctrine of sin. We need to understand why is it that when I look at the world and watch the news and go on social media, talk to my friends, try to have relationships with people, why is it so jacked up? Why is there so many problems and issues? And why do people have so much baggage and carry-ons and all that stuff? It's because of one word. It's because of sin. And we see the foundation of brokenness in Genesis chapter 3. This is commonly referred to as the fall of mankind. Whether you've been in church for a long time or not, you understand that Genesis chapter 3 talks about the fall of mankind. And that's the foundation for brokenness. So we're going to look at the whole chapter today, and I'll give you a, like four words that I think describe a process of brokenness and how things became broken and how, why they continue to be broken. And as we look at this account of the first sin, and we look at those, the four words that I'll give you from the text, I'd like you to think about, is that true in my own life? Is that true? Do I see that happening in our own culture today? So the foundation of brokenness begins in Genesis chapter 5, or Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 with this idea of deception. And it says this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along in your text if you have them. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's stop there. If you have a pet snake, you have a problem. Snakes are evil. They're sinful. I like to point this out. There are... uh, There are basically... I found three. I thought there were only two. But Satan is depicted as three different things in the scripture, right? Right? A snake, a dragon, anyone have a dragon? And a cat. So cats and snakes and dragons, all evil. I'm kidding, kind of. If you're a snake lover or a cat lover, you're welcome here. Uh, But here's what I do want you to see in all seriousness. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And you you don't have to turn there, I've got a convenient bookmark Uh, That will take me there But Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 Helps us to understand something about the serpent Because here in Genesis The serpent's not actually identified as Satan But if you go all the way to the other end of the Bible The other end of the story Revelation 12 9 says this And the great dragon was thrown down That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan The deceiver of the whole world He was thrown down to the earth And his angels were thrown down with him I won't take the time to develop a whole doctrine of of Satan There is actually a doctrine called Satanology I won't develop all of that today Except to say this that, That Satan is real and active 
is a real spiritual force that's out there and a real spiritual being who is out there. And behind all evil is Satan, an intent on destroying God's creation. That all that God created for good, Satan is, is intent on destroying those things. And he perverts and he corrupts and he distorts and he destroys. And we have to believe that behind the brokenness that we see on the news is a real personal evil spirit being known as Satan or the devil or the deceiver. And it's important to understand that because when you're fighting a battle, you want to know something about the enemy. And in Genesis chapter 3, the first half of verse 1, we find something about our enemy, Satan. And I'll say this, that number one, he's no match for God. He's no match for God. This is not like good versus evil, and let's see who's going to come out on top. The Bible always pictures Satan as less than God. He's a created spirit being who fell. We're not told a lot about how that happened, but a created spirit being who fell, and he's real. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He's present, but he's not all-present. When you say the devil made me do it, that's a theologically incorrect statement for a few reasons. When we talk about being tempted by the devil, we don't mean that he's personally standing right here next to us because he's powerful, but he's not all-powerful, and he's there and present, but he's not omnipresent like God. So Satan is no match for God, and number two, he's no excuse for sin, as we'll see in a few minutes, that he's no excuse for sin. He's simply the deceiver. And it says in the second half of verse 1 that he said to the woman... Notice that he came to the woman, he distorts God's created order, and he comes to the woman, and he says this, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I want you to look right back up the page to chapter 2, verse 16. Let's see what God actually said. Now I want you to remember, this is God and Adam in Genesis 2, 16. Adam's the only human alive on earth. Eve has not been created at this point. In Genesis 2, 16, God gives this divine command to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's word. God's words are pure and holy and right and just and true. That pertains to all of God's word in the Bible. This is God's word. God's word is good and holy and right and, ju- and just and true, and it can be counted on. Look what Satan does in chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan distorts God's word. Satan, takes, Satan doesn't make up his own words. Satan doesn't come with his own idea and ideology and spirituality. Satan doesn't come and tempt the first man, the first woman, by, by doing things completely different in his own way, he distorts God's word. Did you know he's doing the same thing today? Things haven't changed. He causes her to question what God says. Did he really say that? Like, did he actually really say that and, like, actually really mean that? Did you know that Satan is still distorting God's word today? People say, oh, the Bible's not true. The Bible's just a book of legends. The Bible's just another book. People say, oh, the Bible's intolerant. The Bible's bigoted. The Bible's racist. People have used the Bible to do bad things, so it must not be true. That's Satan distorting God's word. 
when people use the Bible to, to, to talk about cults or to hold up false ideologies about family and church. Like the woke agenda and woke ideology in the church is a distortion of God's word. You have to understand that. That Satan is continuing today to take God's word and distort it. When a pastor stands up and says that it's okay to love whoever you want, whether they're another guy or another gal, or love can go any way that it wants to, that's a distortion of God's word. It's not true. It's not from Scripture. But everybody has a verse. Do you know that every cult has a verse? Right? Every cult leader has a verse twisted out of context. And that's what Satan's been doing from the beginning. He takes God's word and he distorts it. He twists it. He turns it. We see that happen in secular cultures today. We see that happening in cults. But unfortunately, we see it in the church. Where people are being weak on some of the foundational doctrines that we've just talked about over the last seven weeks. That people are turning their back on some of those doctrines. That, that One of the new ones these days is like redefining inerrancy. Redefining the inspiration of scripture. Right? Redefining the way that we read the Bible so that we can kind of make it say whatever we want. I, I read one secular uh, feminist, actually, uh, interpretation of this passage. And, and, and they actually called Adam and Eve the heroes. Like, they wrote this. They said Adam and Eve were actually the heroes because this is the first act of human independence. And this is a good thing. And they couched this as a, as a good idea. And they said, and this, this article actually said this. He said, it costs a lot, but it was worth it. It costs a lot. Like sin entered the world. It costs a lot. Like that's a distortion of God's word. When somebody can go and they can say like, Eve and Adam are really the heroes of the story. Satan's still at work today, folks, distorting God's word. And look how Eve, in verse 2, responds. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Oh, Eve, good job. Yes, you're answering Satan's temptations with God's word. Eve, you've got it. Eve, you've nailed it. This is what Jesus will do later at the temptation. He'll use God's word and he'll, uh, he'll attack Satan, right? Eve, you're on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> Then there's that other piece. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Oh, Eve, you were so close. Your Awana verse was like almost there. Right? If Eve had had Awana, we would not be in this mess. Amen? Woo! Yes. Here's the question. Did Eve misunderstand God's word? Oh, wait a minute. Eve wasn't there when he gave the divine command that I read a minute ago. Who was there? Men, tell me. Who was there? Adam. Now, men, we have been accused of not being good communicators. Is that true? Yes. Help me. Yes. Sometimes we have problems using our words, right? Apparently, Adam had the same problem because God gave the divine command to Adam. Then Eve misunderstands and misrepresents this divine command. I'm not sure, but I think that in some direction, and the, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but from 2.16, where God tells it to Adam, to chapter 3, verse 2, where she's telling Satan, somewhere it went sideways, right? And here's what we learn from that, that misunderstanding or misquoting or misinterpreting Scripture has serious consequences. When we don't get this right, bad things happen. 
like cults, false doctrines, false ideologies, when we don't get God's word right, when we're sloppy with scripture, when we're fuzzy thinking as Christians. That's why we want you to have a Bible open, be reading your copy of the word. We want you to be studying, and we want to to provide you with like good study helps. That's why we're spending time doing the sermon supplement so that you have something to, to continue to further your study. Ladies, this is Eve. This is important for you, ladies. Like, thank you, Reformation, that now you can open God's word, that we can open God's word, that we have our own copy. I don't have to stand up here in Latin. Thank you, Jesus, because I don't know Latin, right? But that we have the ability to study. And ladies, I want to tell you, it's so important for you to be serious Bible students. We live in a world that, that thankfully, in a lot of ways, like there are some good things about us understanding and, and showing appropriate value to women. And one of those is we need you to be good Bible students. We have ladies' Bible study on Tuesday mornings with Susie. Susie's in, right over there, right? We have a new ladies' discussion group that's starting this Tuesday evening where they're just going to take uh, Shannon Daly and Laura Line are both in the back, I think, and they're going to just take the sermon supplement and use that as an opportunity to lead you in discussion and thinking and talking about the sermon, ladies. So if you're interested in that, see the email, see the website, get that information. But those are all things that we're doing to help you to understand Scripture better because Eve misses it here. And then in verses 4 and 5, we'll see how it continues to spiral. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'd like to point out that God's word is quoted three times here. And all three times they get it wrong. Satan quotes God. Eve misquotes God. And Satan again. And all three times they miss the intention. In these words, we saw that Satan distorted God's word. In these words, in verses 4 and 5, we see that Satan is distorting God's intentions. He actually says, verse 4, You will not surely die. That's a direct contradiction to what God said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's causing her to question God's intentions he's giving an alternate interpretation of reality and that casts God in a bad light Satan doesn't even lie here right he just gives a misdirection of perspective is God really that good this is the person who gives you the counsel that causes you to question whether God really is good or not this is the person that gives you the counsel, that calls you to question whether or not like God's plan for life and the world is actually the right plan. And I'll say this, there's a huge difference between asking, God's, asking God questions and questioning God's character. We welcome questions. This happens every few nights at my house. I'll be reading a little Bible section, and the next thing you know, questions come out of nowhere. Kids ask the best questions. Parents, let your kids ask the questions. This week, like, I'll just tell you, I'm a pastor. I, I know all the answers. That's really convenient for me when I'm, like, yeah. Every time they ask a question, I'm like, I went to seminary, and I don't even understand this, right? Ladies, let me get back to you on that one. But seriously, they're asking me a question. I'm like, oh, shucks, I don't remember that one, right? But we're going to go study it. We're going to figure it out. We're going to try to find the answer together. 
Like your kids need to see you doing that. Super important. When the serpent said you will not surely die, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's casting God in a bad light. His statement directly contradicts the fundamental premise of Genesis 1 and 2. What Satan is trying to do is get them to get her to question God's motives, get her to question God's intention. Is God really good? Genesis 1 and 2 is, real, is all about like God is good and God is great and you can trust him and you can obey him. And Satan is trying to twist that. As a matter of fact, some people have said, like, why the tree at all? Right? Why put the tree there at all? Isn't the tree kind of like you know the cookie jar? And you put the cookie jar on the table and you bake some amazing fresh baked cookies and it smells really good. And you put the cookies into the cookie jar and you leave the lid off and you put it right there so it's like right at, at arm length. And ladies, you say to your husbands, I mean, you say to your kids, right, don't take the cookies. Don't eat the cookies. And you just leave it there, and then you walk out of the room. And some people have said, like, well, that's, isn't that what God's doing? He put the cookies right there, and then he walked out of the room. And what did he expect? Like, why, why would the tree be there at all? Here's what I think. This is their opportunity to demonstrate obedience and trust and loyalty. This is their opportunity to demonstrate obedience and trust and loyalty. And without, like, taking that a long way, you think, like, that's really important. That's an important piece of the relationship between God and man. There is, by the way, choice in that, isn't there? Yes. And at the end of the day, they had an opportunity to show obedience, to show trust in God. I think the tree is there for that reason. And I think that the same thing holds true for today. Every time you're presented with a temptation to sin, guess what? An opportunity for obedience. Every time that a, a temptation to sin comes in, there's an opportunity for you to show, God, I trust you more than I trust myself, my own thing. One of the things that is important for us to understand here is what God is doing and really wrap, get our hands wrapped around that because what I think Satan is doing is, is he is trying to portray God as unloving and unjust and God's rules are oppressive and unjust and you think of it in that way and that is the same accusation leveled against God's word today God's rules are oppressive God's rules are unjust God's rules only have his benefit and not ours at the center and about the best illustration I can think of is this is that that God's rules are like guardrails Right when you're driving down the road, that God's rules are like guardrails. I like to go driving in the mountains, and, and one of the places that we like to go, I like to drive, is Chinook Pass. Over, you know, in in the summertime, you go to Chinook Pass, you go up to the top, and it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's amazing. And as you're driving up there, there's some pretty gnarly drop-offs, and I like to look while I'm driving, right? You know, because it's the mountains, so you're driving around and you're going around these curves, these little two-lane roads and stuff. And one of the things that makes me really confident in looking while I'm driving is guardrails. There's guardrails there. I'm like, it's probably going to like tear up the car, but you know what? At least I won't plunge thousands of feet to my death, right? Having the guardrails there helps me enjoy the view and helps me enjoy the drive. Now, several years ago when I was at the previous church as a youth pastor, and I, was, I came out here from the East Coast, the flat East Coast, and the pastor there loved to go up in the mountains and drive. And he had this little Toyota. It was like a 1980s Toyota hatchback, and it was red, and it was four-wheel drive. And he loved to th take that little thing up into the mountains. 
but he didn't like to go on paved roads. He liked to go on these things called forest service roads. And he liked to go way up into the mountains on forest service roads. And some of you are laughing right now because you know where I'm getting at. You know what they don't put on forest service roads? Guardrails! And he drove like there were guardrails on these roads where there were no guardrails. And I'm like clamped into the seat, freaked out the whole time. And I can literally see over and see thousands of feet and no, nothing else that's there. And I'm like, Wayne, you got to slow down. you got to chill out. We're good. What if somebody's coming the other way? It's a one-lane road, right? God's rules are like the guardrails that allow us to enjoy the freedom of life the way that it's meant to be lived. Satan wants to distort those guardrails and show them as oppressive. That God's not in it for your good. That God is in it for his good. God wants to oppress you and wants to lord it over you and rule over you rather than being a good father who has your best interests in mind. That God really only has his own best interests in mind and he's just a, a dictatorial, mean God. That's what Satan is trying to say. But what I want to say is this, that Satan offers something that everybody's looking for today and it's called autonomy. Autonomy is not freedom. Autonomy means I can define things however I want. I can identify however I want. I can live however I want. There are no rules. I'm the only rule giver. That's autonomy. What God offers is something called freedom. And they're very different things. Everybody thinks they want freedom today, but what they're really looking for is autonomy. Just to be their own boss. Freedom always comes with guardrails. God offers freedom, Satan offers autonomy. And that's what he's offering right here when he says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. True statement? Yes. At the end of this chapter, he's going to say, God's going to say, now they're like me, knowing good and evil. It wasn't the knowledge that was the problem. It was the responsibility that came with the knowledge. And so they decided to, instead of taking the guardrail route, to go their own way. Verse 6 after the deception comes man's decision, mankind's decision. Verse 6 says it like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Pop quiz. Who made the decision, Satan or mankind? Mankind, Right? Satan didn't make the decision. This is really important because some people have this idea that Satan sits on one shoulder and the good angel sits on the other shoulder and they talk back and forth and whichever one... No, that's not how it works, right? The devil didn't make you do it. The Satan deceives, but then we make decisions. And here's how James talks about it, James chapter 1. Some of you know this passage, but James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Now, remember that. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Eve gives into her own desire here. Satan tempts. Satan deceives. But Eve makes the decision. 
And this temptation is three areas of life. And, and 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says what they are, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Here in Genesis 3, it says, She saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. That it's always the same. Temptation is always at work in one of those three areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I heard somebody say, specifically for us as men, that it's girls, gold, and glory. Write that one down. Remember it, right? Those are our three temptations, gentlemen. Girls, gold, glory. We're all like, oh yeah, that's the stuff I struggle with, right? There it is. Girls, you can say guys, gold, and glory. Write it down. But at the end of the day, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's always the same thing. And what Eve does is she follows her feelings. She filled up her appetite. She followed momentary pleasures as opposed to like long-term gratification. Then let's talk about Adam for a minute. Everybody gets down on Eve. Let's talk about Adam. Verse 6, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You've heard me talk about this if you've been around at all. That Adam wasn't off somewhere else doing his own thing. This wasn't Eve sneaking out at night and being tempted. This wasn't, no, they were there, they were together. That Adam wasn't away. That Adam was present, but Adam was passive. Men, spiritual passivity is a sin. Like spiritual passivity for men is sinful. And I'm going to say like a couple things to, to make sure that we're like clear we're in the right place on this. That, that quiet and passive are very different. That some men are, are quiet. And some of the strongest spiritual leaders that I know are quiet men. As a matter of fact, the opposite can even be true. Sometimes you hear these really grandiose personalities, and they can cover up some really deep flaws. Quiet doesn't mean passive. You can have a really loud and outgoing person who doesn't take any spiritual responsibility, and, that, and that's passivity. What God has given us the incredible privilege for in terms of spiritual leadership is taking spiritual inif initiative maybe you're here and like you're struggling with that whole thing like thank you for being here right the fact that you're here and you're sitting under god's word gives you opportunity to continue to grow in this area because i struggle with it too right sometimes i have these great ideas of how I'm going to lead my family spiritually and all the things that we're going to do and how amazing and beautiful and perfect it's going to be. And then I try to like live those things out and it doesn't go as planned, you can imagine, sometimes. And I'm just like, ah, forget it. I'm going out in the woods, right? Ah, I'm tired of making all these decisions. But when we take spiritual initiative, that's making the spiritual decisions. That can be as simple as buying a, a little kid's Bible, and sitting down and reading with your kid. You're like, ah, I'm not good at reading. You know what? That's okay. Is your wife good at reading? Have her read, and you be there, right? And then you ask a question or two. Do our kids see us as active in their spiritual life? And it looks different for different men and different personalities. Very different. But it's taking spiritual initiative, and that's what God has called us to. I wrote down here in my notes, let them see you wrestle 
Let them see you repent. Like this happens in our household. I know you think that they see me as the perfect dad. You can ask them afterwards. No, don't ask them afterwards. As a matter of fact, we're going to leave right afterwards through the back door. Okay. <laughs> right? But they'll tell you, man, I screw up. Right? This week I blew up on one of them and I needed to be chill. And the truth of the matter is, is like I'm looking at Ephesians 5 and I'm like, I think I'm doing some exasperating and I shouldn't be doing that. Right? And I got to come back and I got to say, you know what? I need you to forgive me because I'm not perfect. But your kids need to see you wrestle, and they need to see you repent. That's part of spiritual leadership. That's part of being the men that God wants us to be. He was present, and he was passive. So they sin. Take the bite of the apple. I think it was an apple, right? I, I think I saw that somewhere. Fl flannel graph when we were kids, right? So it had to have been an apple. There were all kinds of trees. There was a cheesesteak tree somewhere in the garden. I'm convinced of it. And it was a Philly cheesesteak tree, not this stuff you get over here on the, East Co on the West Coast, okay? But they ate the apple. So then what? Verses 7 through 13, we'll see what? We'll see that there's a confrontation that will ensue. It says, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Guilt and shame enter the picture right here. Because in 2.25, it says that they were naked and they were unashamed. And here they know that they're naked, and there's shame and there's guilt, that that innocence is lost. And innocence is a very good thing. And we all know that when innocence is lost, it's a difficult thing. And the innocence now is lost. Then in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Sin makes you stupid. Amen? You can see the man and the woman. It's like God created everything. And they're like, oh, I know. Let's go hide behind that tree that he created. He'll never find us. Right? Your kids ever do dumb stuff when, when they sin and you caught them? Let's share some. Somebody, I don't, no, I'm just kidding. Right? Yeah, they pad the rear end because they know you're coming with the paddle. They do this to hide, you know, when they're little. Like, if they can't see me, then I'm invisible, and they'll never punish me, right? Sin makes you do stupid things, and they go and they hide. Verse 9, but the Lord called to the... Oh, come on, fellas, let's do it together. And the Lord called the man and said to him, where are you? Oh, no, 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 Lord, it wasn't me, right? He calls to the man first. He holds the man accountable first. He's like, but she took the first bite. And remember back in chapter 2, Lord, you gave her to me, and she's hot. And what am I supposed to do? I can't say no to her, right? That is in chapter 2, by the way. Remember when he sings, this is my hot wife, and she should be called, yeah. <laughs> it's in the original. But there he is. The Lord calls to the man, where are you? Look at verse 10. He said, the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Because fear is like chains. I think you guys, some of you know the song, right? But fear is like these chains that imprison us. And there had been no fear until this moment. That there had been no anxiety attacks and there had been no other ramifications of fear. That man had lived in perfect fellowship with God and didn't know fear. And think about it, like all of us in one way or another live with the effects of fear. 
Some of us fear things that we don't even know that we fear. And here is Adam. And that little I was afraid is so sad because, again, innocence is broken. And fear comes into the picture. Verses 11 through 13. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And in verse 12, the man said, I own it, Lord. I take ownership. I'm the spiritual leader, and I failed. Please forgive me. No. The man played the victim. He blame shifted. Lord, the hot wife you gave me, it was her. It was all her. You've heard the phrase throwing someone under the bus. Guys, Rule number one, if you don't get anything else today, don't throw your wife under the bus for anything, ever, okay? Maybe she even did it. Eve did it. Don't throw her under the bus. Important. Take a note. Guys, don't take notes. Write that one down. The man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit to eat, and so I ate it. What was I supposed to do, Lord? You gave her to me, remember? Like, I'm just the victim here. Victim mentality is everywhere today, by the way. You're like, this is a new thing. Nobody will take responsibility, and everybody plays the victim. Oh, not a new thing. Right there from the beginning. It wasn't my fault. It was my circumstances. I've got daddy issues. I've got mommy issues. I've got every issue, right? I don't have enough medication. I just, it's not my fault. It's my circumstances, if only the government would give me more money, right? Like there's all kind, everybody's always a victim. That's from the fall. Then the woman says, verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what this, is this that you have done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame shifting, playing the victim, failure to own it. All of those are pieces of what is happening in this text. And they're all responses that people have to sin today, even. I want you to see two things in this piece. That guilt and shame and fear and hiding are the real fruits of sin. Sin always promises and always underdelivers. It's been said that sin will cost you more than you're willing to pay. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It always overpromises and it always underdelivers. The real fruits of sin right here guilt and shame and fear and hiding and those things still pervade our society today more than they ever have because our society is broken the other thing i want you to see is that we are responsible for our sin and not victims of our sin we must take personal responsibility in a world that everyone wants to shift the blame and everyone wants to play the victim we must take personal responsibility for our sin and our lives Finally, in the last verses, we see the consequences. The consequences for the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We're going to come back to that next week because that is essentially... In my understanding of the text, the first time we see Jesus foreshadowed in the story of Scripture, that we see the final defeat of Satan foreshadowed. In verse 16, he'll talk to the woman. It says, To the woman, he said, You will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Ladies who have had children, amen? 
Thank you, Eve. But it's actually more than that. This is the whole process. And the, the wording in the original language, really, it's like the whole process. It's the anxiety of, will I have kids? It's the anxiety of, now I have kids. It's the anxiety of, like, the pain and the, all of the things that are related to it. All of those pieces are there. Then it says something interesting. It says, your desire shall be... And most of your translations, including the one I'm holding in my hand, the English Standard Version, says, your desire shall be for your husband. But there's an interesting little thing going on here. Some of you are on your phones, and you're looking at an English Standard Version, you think, and it actually says that your desire will be contrary to your husband. Does anybody have that translation? Well, my English Standard says for your husband, and his says contrary. Which one is it? Well, if you're reading the 2011 text edition, which I have and all the Pew Bibles are, it's your desire will be for your husband. If you're reading the 2016 text edition of the ESV, which these guys are, it says contrary to. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? Because it seems like it. No, they're all saying the same thing, and that's like there's going to be a wrestling match. Okay? A a different translation actually kind of brings it to light even a little bit better, and it says this, that your desire will be to control your husband. And he will rule over you. The idea behind what's happening here is that there's going to be, we were made for this one flesh unity. And now that's distorted with division. Rather than being his helper, there's going to be this proclivity to be his nemesis. Some of you are like, that explains a lot of what I think about my spouse. Right? It's a result of the fall. What I want you to see is that biblical headship and submission is a biblical idea from Genesis 1 and 2. Domination, passivity, all of those distortions of roles is from the fall and are sinful. Verses 17 through 19, he talks to the man and to Adam. He said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which God commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. Until dust you shall return. The moral of the story in this man. Where did it all start? He listened to his wife. Don't listen to your wives. Amen guys? No. What? Joel, come on. You didn't buy that. Okay, good. Joel was writing on a note. He's like, okay. Kelly's smacking. Yeah. No. The idea is that he abdicated his spiritual responsibility. He pushed it off. And God says, because you did that, because you pushed off spiritual responsibility, now painful toil in work, painful toil in the world, and ultimately physical death. We don't know exactly how that worked before the fall, but now we know how it works. Physical death, because he didn't take the responsibility he had. I know, it's time for me to be done. I see it. It's noon. Wow. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We'll talk again about that next week. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take of the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Ultimately, sin separates us from God. Ultimately, sin breaks our relationship with God. Ultimately, sin leads to spiritual death. 
Sin and evil are the root problem behind all other problems. That's the foundation of brokenness. It happens every day, just like it happened on that day. That there's the deception. Then there's our decision. There's a confrontation, and sin always has consequences. Next week, we get to talk about the best news of all, because we're going to talk about the foundation of salvation. But in case you don't come back next week, let me just say it like this. There's only one answer to sin. And his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus. He shows up in Genesis 3. He shows up all throughout the Bible. He shows up at the cross. We're going to sing a song. I know it's noon, but we have to sing a song. We only get to do this a couple more weeks. When we start the two services, we won't sing after the message. So we've got to sing the song. I'm going to have the team come forward. As they're coming forward, it's going to take them a minute to get up here so I can read another verse. This is really important, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all has sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news.